All right, everybody, there is joy in the house of the Lord. Let's worship the Lord today. worship the God who was, we worship the God who is, we worship the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors, he parted the raging sea, my God, he holds the victory. We sing to the God who always makes a way. Cause he hung up on that cross, then he rolled out from that grave. My God, still rolling stones away. Father, we thank you for this biblical truth that as we sing, 
you give us joy and you get the glory. God, we pray that we would just continue to to, to uh, work with that beautiful, beautiful cycle that you've created. We worship, you get the glory, you get the glory, we worship, and it just continues and continues and continues. Lord, we thank you for designing our worship and our praise that way, and uh, we, we just want to give you all the glory today, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, um, we want to call your attention to the connection card, so please fill that out. And then also there's a separate uh, prayer request card, and, and those uh, the staff, pastor and staff, pray for every Tuesday morning. And so uh, fill that out, put that in the offering plate. And then uh, we have some special Resurrection Sunday cards, and we really, really want to get all of these out to, our, uh, to your friends and, and family and co-workers, those who don't have a church home. Uh, we would love for them to join us and worship with us uh, Easter Sunday morning. So you'll see all the various times, special times, um, 7 o'clock sunrise and all the rest is on that card. So be sure and, uh, and pass, those, pass those out. Well, today we're going to be speaking uh, about the the Holy Spirit, and one of my favorite old, uh, well, first of all, let me share it with you, Galatians 5, 16, it says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. One of my favorite old, uh, Holy Spirit songs is the old hymn, Holy uh, Spirit of the Living God, and if you think about it, it says, melt me, take away the old nature, mold me, Make a new nature in me, right? Ezekiel 39, take away the heart of stone, put in me a heart of flesh. 36, I think, sorry. Um, Fill me with your spirit. And the ultimate goal of every believer, what? Use me to the glory of God. So let's sing that old hymn together. Will you stand with us and sing? Spirit of the living God,
Certainly greater is he that lives in me than the enemy. Lord, we, we, just, uh, we just are overwhelmed with gratitude of what you've done for us. And so at this time of giving, we're not going to try to give back equal to what you've done. That's impossible. But Lord, we're going to try to be obedient and we're going to try to be um, just uh, vessels used by you. Like we said, mold me, Lord, fill me, use me. Part of using me is, is, is this time of giving. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just bless this time and, uh, as, as our act of worship to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
I think it is very fitting sometimes where we just thank the Lord for Brother David and Miss Cammy and, and our choir. And what a blessing they are to us and the fact that they, Miss Debbie playing the piano and all of them working, uh, instrumentalists and uh, practicing on Wednesday nights and praying that God would direct them in what they sing and together with what we preach from the Word of God and what a blessing it is. Uh, to hear a song like, He Will Hold Me Fast. Amen. All right, Ephesians 4, verse 25. Aren't you all thankful that we're just making our way through Ephesians? I don't know how many sermons we've preached out of Ephesians, but we are making our way. Verse 25, to get us back in context. Chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. <clears throat> Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger 
and give no opportunity to the devil. Now remember that phrase when we get down to verse 30. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for our building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And grammatically, verse 30 is tied with the conjunction and with the particular phrase, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Now listen to verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And here's a positive motivation of why not, why you should not. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So, I think it's important that we stop when we see a phrase like, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, and spend our time figuring out what that means, how we should respond, because in the words of Walter Murray McShane, the great preacher of old, He said, my greatest ambition in life is to be a holy man. Now, that's a a mouthful, isn't it? It's not so, we don't say my greatest ambition in life is to be a holy man or woman because we expect for you to look at us and say, oh, how great I am. It's not for you to be a part of a holy club that no one else is a part of. You understand, you can have an ambition to do something so that you can just be lifted up in the eyes of people. But folks, in reality, the one that looks upon you is the Lord God Almighty. And based upon what He has done in us and to us and for us, we should all have a desire and an ambition to be a holy man or woman before the Lord, thus fulfilling what God would have us to do. So, based on this text, remember this expression from years ago or maybe... It's new to you, but we use the expression, there's more going on than meets the eye. Now, you've probably used that expression. We've thought about that. I think that is definitely true when we look at our government. There's certainly more going on. We hope, and there there we say we don't know what's going on. But the fact is, within not realizing what's going on, in the unseen world, we can give the enemy a foothold. Did y'all see it? So that's because of being angry. We can, that's something that we don't see. We don't, we don't have the progressive lenses at times to see the fact that our anger can lead to the enemy getting a foothold. Conversely, grieving the spirit causes something in the unseen world uh, more than just your relationships with one another in this church. But this text says that you can actually grieve the Holy Spirit of God by the way you treat one another with your words. Something that's actually taking place in the unseen world. In other words, Paul has a perception of reality that's really a spiritual reality that's really the ultimate reality. Perceiving that that is really the ultimate reality, spiritual warfare and what's going on. So to lose your temper is not only a matter of having a short fuse or saying things you should not say or acting in a way you should not act, but there's something spiritual behind the scenes. 
In other words, something more than meets the eye. You give the devil a foothold. And there's a spiritual reality uh, behind a very ordinary carnal exhibition of a loss of temper. And that's that you can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So, an unwholesome word coming out of our mouths is not merely hurting someone's feelings. Or saying something destructive, as bad as those things are to the church body. There's a greater reality going on in the background. And it's that we, individually and corporately, can grieve the very Holy Spirit of God. Kind of quiet in here. Is this interesting to you? It has been to me because it's cleaned my clock. In many, many ways. Don't think for a moment that the only way we grieve the Spirit is through our words. I think it's connected with a conjunction. It's important. But I will remind you that he is the Holy Spirit. So that means that anything that is unholy in the people of God grieves him. So we could really link all of this together in that reality. Now, let's dive in. Why would Paul say, do not grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, again, there's an Old Testament reference. Y'all find that? Uh, weird or different? No, because Paul is immersed in the Old Testament. And now he's going to give us another understanding of why he says what he says. And you have to track with me, but if you'll take your copy of God's Word, Isaiah chapter 63, verse 10 is where Paul actually is quoting Isaiah. And this is not incidental. There's a purpose for why Paul is doing this. Okay? So Isaiah 63, verse 10, here's what the word of the Lord says. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. So that is the reference. They rebelled against him. They meaning the ones that he had brought out of the land of Egypt with a mighty redemption and deliverance. They rebelled against him and grieved him. So think about this profound uh, bringing together of two communities. Right? And, And Paul sees a continuity between those brought out of Egypt and they were the people of God and yet they rebelled against him. And the new covenant people of God who have been redeemed by the grace of Christ... And how we respond to our God and that we can rebel and that we can grieve him. So what Isaiah is going to do is depict for us what the messianic victory actually looks like. We have a conqueror. And Isaiah tells us who it is. It's the Lord of glory. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Remind you that that's 700 years before the time of Christ. And we're already having the prophecies of who he is. But he's going to eloquently provide intercession For those readers in Isaiah's day, for them to reflect back on the Exodus and for them not to follow along the same lines and grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So he begins to recount this. Isaiah is going to use language that comes directly from Exodus chapter 33, 12 through 14, and it's talking about the fact that not only did God redeem them, listen, folks, but God Almighty was with them all the way in his presence. He, was, he didn't only bring them out, but he was actually with them. And what did the Israelites do for their part? They rebelled and they grieved the Holy Spirit. So it links these two biblical passages together. 
And it's what's called a typological correspondence between those events. You have two covenant people, the old and the new. And he's bringing those together. And Isaiah 63 looks back to the Exodus and to Yahweh, Yahweh as presented as the Savior of Israel. And if you're looking at the New Testament, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he led them by his own personal presence. And Israel rebelled and grieved. The psalmist will say in Psalm 78 verse 40, How often they rebelled against him in the desert and grieved him in the waste land. So, let's bring this over to Ephesians. Okay? Who is he addressing? Well, he's addressing this new community of believers. Chapter 2 verse 15 actually calls them the new man. Listen to the word of the Lord. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace, right? And might that he might reconcile them together through his cross. So we have this new covenant community. We find in chapter 1 verse 7 that he's redeemed them. We find in verse 21 and 22... Listen to this, incredible. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you are also brought together, being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Think about this connection. There's the old covenant people of God who rebelled against the Lord, but there's this profound continuity between the people of God. If you're a people of God in the old, you're a people of God in the new, uh, saved the same way based upon the person of Christ. So I think it would behoove all of us in our hearts, in our minds, in our conduct, in the things that we say, uh, to think about the fact that we need a perception that there's more going on than meets the eye. When it comes to community life, we don't rebel against the Holy Word of God. We don't rebel against our Lord. And we do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by what we say, how we treat one another. And again, I think that's an all-encompassing statement that there are many ways that we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, folks, we risk all the time. We're risking rebelling against the Lord. And grieving his Holy Spirit. So, that's the connection with Isaiah chapter 63 verse 10. That covenant community of the Lord grieved the Lord. Rebelled against him. We are the people of Christ if you are saved. And Paul reminds us that the very same presence of the Holy Spirit. Not only that brought Jesus Christ out from the grave. But the very presence that brought the people out of Egypt. Is the very same Holy Spirit that the same Holy Spirit that brooded over the face of the earth and created life out of nothing is the same Spirit that lives in you. Right? So, so here's the admonition this morning. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Sermon's over. No, it's not, right? So, the word grieve is strong. Okay, in your notes, it just says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit or do not grieve the Spirit of God. So, did you know that's the word uh, used of Jesus? When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Y'all listening? When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was distraught with sorrow. So the word actually can mean a range of meaning. Like to cause severe mental or emotional distress. It can mean to vex or irritate or offend or insult. So that's a strong 
Very strong word. Now, does that have powerful implications for us? Do not grieve. Don't vex. Don't insult. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Don't forget the connection. At least we can say without reservation it has to do with what you say. Right? How you treat one another with your words. And so, the first thing we have to say is the Holy Spirit is a person. Right? When we ask, when it says do not grieve... And then it says who, the Holy Spirit. We have to understand that he's a person. You can't grieve a force. You can't grieve a principle. You can't grieve an influence. You actually grieve a person. And the Holy Spirit of God is a person. Second, it's important to note that he can be grieved individually. And he can be grieved corporately. Why? Because individually he indwells us if you're a believer. And corporately he indwells this very body of believers. So how is it that the Holy Spirit can be grieved considering that he is God? We'd have to say, well, how is that possible? Well, he's a real person. Now we do know this. God is certainly different than we are in his emotional state. But that does not mean that he doesn't have emotions. It doesn't mean he doesn't have passions. One of the great differences here... Is whereas we are subject to these things, sorrow, pain, right? We know this, grief, regret. We are subject to fear. But God is above those things, and he is absolutely subject to nothing. However, he can be grieved because he has a relationship with us. He can be grieved because he has voluntarily aligned himself with us in such a way that he allows himself to be grieved. He doesn't have to do that because he's God. Isn't it amazing that Jesus sympathizes with our infirmities? Why? Because he himself was a man. He knows exactly what it's like. But we might call this uh, sovereign uh, voluntarism, right? He is, he is in control, he is sovereign, and he is in authority. But yet, at the same time, he allows himself. We might call it sovereign vulnerability. He can be grieved. Why? Because he is a person. That makes a difference in the way you live your Christian life when you think, well... Agreeing with the Spirit, oh, that's just some kind of force, some kind of principle. No, it is the third person of the divine trinity. He is God. And he lives in you. He is a person. So, I think the Holy Spirit can be grieved in some degree with every sin that we commit. Why? Because he is the Holy Spirit. He is holy. In the context of Ephesians 4, an unkind, unwholesome speech... That's particularly grieving to the Holy Spirit of God. Disunity between brothers and sisters in the family of God at large is grievous to the Holy Spirit of God. We would also say that unholiness among the people of God. You see how expansive this can actually be. What about the Holy Spirit's relationship to Christ? Well, John 16, 14 says, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Who is the Holy Spirit always called to glorify? Jesus Christ. Jesus said, he will glorify me. The Holy Spirit is the author of the word of God. So if we rebel against the word of God, guess what happens? We're grieving the Holy Spirit of truth. We should confess that all that hinders true spiritual worship, even when we come in here on a Sunday morning, all that hinders that true spiritual worship actually grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Because God has sought such that would worship him in spirit and in truth. We all know how that works. You come in here on Sunday morning and you've had a rough, rough week. And everything's gone wrong in your mind and heart. 
And yet you come in here and David leads off with a song about shouting for joy. And the last thing you want to do is shout for joy. What hinders that? Well, it's our perspective, right? It's our perception. It's what we see. It's what we think. It's what the Holy Spirit of God has made us aware of in our heart and mind. So when we fail to worship Him for who He is, with all that we have within us, we have to certainly say, "Mm, that certainly grieves the Holy Spirit of God. What are the results of grieving His Spirit? What about lack of fellowship with God? He that says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. Yet 1 John reminds us that God has no fellowship with darkness. In other words, it's never an issue of sonship if you're saved. In other words, you don't lose your salvation. But what about that fellowship factor? Anybody ever agree that you fill out a fellowship with the Lord? Well, God hasn't gone anywhere. I mean, just think about that for a moment. There's this withdrawal of the fellowship principle of the presence of God that we sense immediately when we're grieving the Holy Spirit of God. How about assurance of salvation? Y'all know that salvation is objective from our God's perspective. He saved you, done deal. But subjectively, from your place, when you're in sin and you're in a constant pattern of grieving the Holy Spirit without confession, then you're not going to feel saved. Is anybody listening? You're not going to have the assurance of your salvation. And there's a book of the Bible written about assurance of salvation from the beginning to the end, and it's called 1 John, right? Uh, these, things you may, uh, these things have been written that you might know that you have eternal life. And many of those things have to do with things that we do that grieve the Spirit of God, and it thus messes up our fellowship. How about covenant blessings? Well, certainly. We can fail to get the covenant blessings from the Lord, just daily life, just simply because we're grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Now, Paul is now going to give us a grand incentive for not grieving the Holy Spirit of God. I looked at my watch, and I don't have one. (laughs) I dropped it on the ground, no no joke, and I went to snap it back two, three days ago, and it wouldn't snap, so y'all are in trouble. (laughs) I guarantee you some of you are going to say, please go get that watch fixed, all right? But here's the pattern There's a pattern of ethics in the Bible, right? Okay, you need to think about this. There's a pattern of ethics in the Bible, okay? There's an indicative statement by God of what he's done for you, and then there's an imperative command based on what he's done for you, how you're supposed to live. Y'all understand? So, in other words, these are not principles you can live if you're lost. you got to have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God in your life. God's done this work in you. And thus there is the imperative. But here in our text it's reversed. Okay? You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, therefore don't grieve Him. Understand what God has done, the indicative, is He sealed you with the Holy Spirit of God until the day of redemption. Therefore, motivation, do not grieve Him. So, the imperative, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, is an amazing thing. But it's followed by this indicative statement. Thus, setting up the motive for not grieving him in a positive light. And it's this. Stop long enough to think about who it is that lives inside of you. Stop long enough to think about who it is that redeemed your heart. So Paul gives us, Paul gives us a motivation for not grieving. I'm thankful that Paul doesn't give us a warning that's really strong. An old Puritan warning, right? Like, if you grieve me, God can kill you. And he can. He's got that right, doesn't he? Just ask Moses when you get to glory. What happened to him? Because he 
struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. The fact of the matter is, that's not the motivation Paul gives. He actually gives us a very positive, wonderful motivation. And the motivation is that you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. Let's move fast. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Chapter 4 verse 30, the one we just read, says that you have been sealed. Do not grieve the Spirit where we were sealed for the day of redemption. And then there's one more text that actually has this issue of the seal in it. And it is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts, check it out, as a guarantee. So there are two verses that mention this deposit or guarantee or earnest. And that would be 113 Ephesians and 2, chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. Now, question. Do y'all remember when I preached on the sealing of the Spirit in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13? Y'all remember what I said? I didn't think so. Because that's a long time ago. Chasing me if you remember all this. And I'm going to go fast. So that, um, it, but if it's redundant to you, just tell me you had it all together. But when Paul says you've been sealed with the Spirit, he is thinking about an ancient practice that took place that was extremely common. In other words, it has two meanings. It, it actually can be the actual signet ring. Let's use that for an example. That is moved over in the warm wax. And that instrument is used And the instrument actually makes, with the warm wax, an impression. Okay? So, when we speak of being, when Paul speaks of being sealed, it can mean two things. It can denote the actual instrument itself, or the signet. Or, it can be used to denote an actual impression that is made. Did you know that both of those were called the seal? In the ancient days, you would take a ring with a symbol on it that represented... Uh, your name, uh, let's say Brian Spencer, so it would, no, let's don't use that. You know, we're not, we're not using that. David Hicks, D-H, right? Y'all don't even catch that. <laughs> well, I stepped in that one, didn't I? Yeah, that was really good. So David Hicks, so let's say it has D-H on it, okay? And that would be his signet, okay? So it provided protection, legality, authority, and it was really especially important when it comes to property. It was a sign of legal ownership. It's a mark of authenticity that it belonged to someone. Look, folks, it was not a community seal. Didn't represent everybody at one time. It was an individual signet and or impression. There was, in fact, a statute that forbid the maker of the seals to actually retain that particular impression left by the seal. Why? It protected them from fraud. It was legal proof of identity and authenticity. The seal was a legal guarantee against violations. Now this is really strong because the holder of the seal actually is the holder of the power and he has in his place a duly constituted order of might and right 
that actually came from that particular seal. So the holder of the seal was the one who had the power. Now, we don't use a signet ring a whole lot today, but if you've watched a Western any time lately, what do they do? They brand their cattle. Because if your cows go running all over the place and jump a fence, there's, there's a way you can identify them. How about a document that is to be notarized? That's, that's a seal. How about a court document that you receive in the mail? Or a letter from the state. They reflect Authority, they reflect authenticity. As a matter of fact, folks, your own signature is a seal. Right? And you do it all the time when you write that. How about this? How about the sticky stuff on the envelope that you lick? Are you wet? Do you know, you know what that means? That's that person's mail and not yours, so don't open it. Something as simple as that particular seal is given for a reason. How about the fact that in the New Testament the word seal is used 32 times... 22 of those, 32, appear in the book of Revelation. Hallelujah, when things get bad. Thank the Lord for the seal, right? In many, many ways. Only one had the authority to break the seals in the book of Revelation and open the scroll, and his name was Jesus. Hallelujah, he could break that seal and open it. We're coming up on Easter, right? We have in the Word of God, in Matthew 27, Pilate, who put his seal upon the tomb. Most likely, it was the governor's seal that was placed on the tomb of Christ. And what did it mean? No trespassing. If you do, you're going to die. Well, the Lord didn't read that sign. Amen? Because he came out, right? So the elect are sealed in Revelation 7 and in Revelation 9, clearly meaning for the purpose of protection and identification. They're protected by God. They belong to him. But our focus is on Paul's uses. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in the actual sealing that takes place? Oh, well, let me, let me say this. Is it the impression left or is it the Holy Spirit himself? I believe that the Holy Spirit is himself the signet, the seal himself. He is the one. Now, does he mark you in ownership? Absolutely. But I, I think according to 2 Corinthians 1.22, he is the signet. He himself has been given to you as the guarantee of your inheritance. But quickly, what emerges out of this concept is first the mark of ownership. When God seals you with his Holy Spirit, folks, he demonstrates that he owns you. No comment? In America, you don't think anybody owns you, right? We're all ourselves. But in reality, you've been bought with a price, right? That's direct scripture. You've been redeemed. You've been bought with a price. And the Bible says, therefore, you are not your own. God owns you. So that seal is placed upon you as a demonstration that those who belong to God have been sealed accordingly. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 again. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. So we're the possession of a king, and his name is Jesus. And when you are brought into the family of God, God graciously for lack of a better way of saying it, brands you in the Holy Spirit himself. So he puts his mark on you that says something to the effect of property of the king, Jesus. You're owned by him. We belong to our Heavenly Father through Christ. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit to demonstrate that we belong to Christ by right of redemption. He redeemed you, and you belong to him. Second, it has to do with identity and authenticity. Not just a mark of ownership, 
But think about this, folks. It's who you are. It's identity and it's authenticity. It's only true Christians who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's only believers. Thus, the Holy Spirit's presence and power in the sealing of our lives is the sure mark of authenticity that you belong to God. We are His. We've been purchased by Him forever. Please remember the Bible says that if you do not have the Spirit, you do not belong to Christ. It says it clearly in Romans 8, 9. It is a possession of the Spirit and the Spirit's possession of you that is the mark of authenticity that you truly belong to God. The absence of the Holy Spirit in your life, indwelling you, means that you do not belong to the Lord. But it's also a mark of security and protection. The Spirit of God guarantees, promises that you will persevere. In Ephesians 1 and 2 Corinthians, it says that the Spirit is given as, there's that word guarantee or pledge. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the down payment. It's the down payment that you're going to be preserved by Christ all the way to the end because the Holy Spirit has sealed you. Folks, listen to this. It's the Spirit of God who actually places in your heart a love for Christ. You don't have to have a discipleship class as a believer to learn to love Jesus. Now, is a discipleship class important? Yes, but we can't throw everything out with the bathwater and say, Hey, the reason that person is not in love with Christ is because they haven't been discipled enough. The greatest teacher that God ever gave you is the Holy Spirit of God. And yes, we need to disciple people. But folks, there's something wrong when we have to try to coax people up to love Christ. Don't you understand that the Holy Spirit of God has placed the love of Christ in your heart. He's placed in you a desire for obedience. Why are y'all looking at me so spiritual, right? I mean, what do you think is the motivating factor in your heart and life that, that makes you want to obey the Lord? Well, it's the Holy Spirit of God. He actually puts in you a desire for the Word. Not only love for Christ, not only obedience to Christ, but a love for His Word. Because you'll drown, you'll, you'll starve without it. Thy Word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? This book of the law shall not depart from your lips, but you shall meditate in it day and night to observe all that is written therein. And then you shall make your way prosperous. It's a little different from Joel Osteen's teaching, right? You, you meditate upon the Word of God and it'll make you prosperous, but not money, right? It's the things that actually money can't give you. It's really what that is. So think about this for a moment. It is the seal of the Spirit that places the very faith in you whereby God regenerated you into Christ. It is the seal of the Spirit that is the strongest grounds for the eternal security of the believer. Folks, if you die and go to hell as a believer, you have to take the Holy Spirit with you. And I don't think that's going to happen. Amen? Have you ever considered when you're sealed? So, look at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. That preposition can mean until the day of redemption. Or it can be for the purpose of the day of redemption. I think both are implied. I think it's looking toward the end. We call that eschatological eschatological. In other words, if you're kept until the day, then you're kept to the very end. And if you are kept for the day, then you're kept to the very end. 
Either way, the day of redemption in the New Testament is the exact meaning of the day of the Lord or the day of Christ. And just to cut to the chase, when Christ comes in all of his glory, he will come from ju- for judgment. But he will also come to ratify the full end of salvation for those who are in Christ. It's both of those things. And according to this text, you're secure in him as his child all the way till that day. So the day of redemption in the New Testament is the exact same thing as the day of the Lord and the day of Christ. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit until the last day. And although we have already received God's justifying verdict by faith, we await through the Spirit the hope of the same verdict in that last day. So hear this, believer. You will be kept. He will hold me fast. Praise the Lord. He keeps you from the moment you enter the kingdom by faith until the day that Jesus returns or you see him in glory. Now, uh, implications real fast. What time is it, by the way? 11.23? Man, I am doing great. Y'all probably need for me to be up here without a watch all the time, right? And then I'll rapid fire. Here's very important things for you to think about, okay? The first implication of holding you, securing you all the way to the end is simply that. It is the security of the believer. You are sealed to the very day of redemption. Again, think about this. This is the motivating factor for not grieving the Spirit. Don't miss that. One is your security in the Lord. Take comfort in this reality that those who belong to Christ can never be lost. Can never be lost. Those who belong to Jesus by right of redemption, can never ultimately or finally fall away. This uh, is a most pointed assertion that those who have been bought by redemption, by the blood of Christ, brought into God, by the preached gospel, you can't separate those. Where there is faith, there is the preached gospel. And without the preached gospel, there is no faith. I'm thankful that the God of eternity not only gives the end, but he tells you the means to the end. There's no salvation without the preached word of God. In the sense of you hearing the word. Why? Because faith cometh by... Y'all understand what that says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. But I want to to remind you of something. He keeps you from that moment all the way to the end. That's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. Right? Right? Let's be clear about this doctrine, folks. The Spirit never abandons a child of God. The seal is a seal, right? You not go in and out of salvation. God sealed you, and the devil cannot break that seal. All those who truly belong to Christ will persevere until the end with faith and good works. And a lot of denominations will cry foul at that and say to us, well, that just means you've got easy believism. You just made a decision and now there's nothing you can do to get out of your decision. And you Baptists who believe in eternal security just have a license for sin. Did y'all read the text? If the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, you don't want to grieve him. What's the motivation? God's going to hold you fast forever. Wow, what a motivation. God has sealed you. It's not a flag of decisionism. Uh, The Bible is clear that there will be false professors. Y'all do know that, right? 
John says they went out from us because they were not part of us. Because had they been of us, they would have remained. Perseverance. Had they been of us, they would have remained. People who walk away from the faith and never return were never saved. Hebrews 12 says this, Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. It says, What father would have a son and not discipline him? Folks, I'm just telling you. God has a very big stick. And if you belong to Him, He will pursue you. He will. He has to. Why? Because you've been bought and sealed. He's your child. And He will not stop until you turn around or He takes you to heaven. He won't. So, I think there's some solace there for us who, who, who may have children or kin people who are away from the Lord. If they've ever truly belonged to Him in the past, our God has promised that He will preserve them. And He will get their attention. God has His way of doing this. You can take it to the bank. Hebrews 12 is written for that purpose. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And everyone that does not receive the chastisement of the Lord is a bastard. That's the literal word. It means you're an illegitimate child. And I say to God every time he whips me, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Conviction of the Spirit, desire to obey, even though we fall on our face over and over and over again, there's this desire to love Christ, to obey Christ, and to know full well that when we sin, we grieve him. Something the Lord gives us. So, I want to remind you that those God saves, he saves good. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 7.25 says he is able to save those to the uttermost who come unto him. To the uttermost. What a glory. God's grace is so powerful, so transforming, that the people of God will persevere in faith and good works until the end. Now listen, folks. The glory of perseverance of the saints is not about the saint and how well you preserve. As a matter of fact, You're an athlete in this race. I get it. But you're not a good athlete. The glory is the preservation of the lamb on the throne. He preserves in preservation the perseverant saint. He's the one who holds you fast. He's the one who is doing this. The glory in all of this is that we have a Savior who is seated at the right hand of the Father who has sealed you with his spirit. And the Bible says he prays for you without ceasing. There's another great mark of security. How can can you ever lose when the Son of God is praying for you at all times? If he ever stopped praying, you would be eternally lost. But aren't you thankful for that? Nobody can break the seal. You have the seal of God's immutable, omnipotent spirit. And if you're in Christ today, on the authority of the word of God, you will never perish the saints in heaven the spirits in heaven are probably a whole lot happier than we are today but they're no more secure than you are right now that's the authority of God's written word and then finally here's our motivation for holiness (laughs) and some of you are saying okay preacher let's get this straight Paul says don't grieve the Holy Spirit because he sealed me to the day of redemption Don't grieve the Spirit because I can't lose my salvation. Don't grieve the Spirit. I've been stamped with divine ownership. Don't grieve the Spirit because I'm going to persevere to the end because of God's preservation. Don't grieve the Spirit because He's promised to protect me no matter what. Don't grieve the Spirit because that love is such that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ 
from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord, Romans 8, right? Some may think, and uh, all of that is yes, that's why you do, right? It is because all of those things, and again, we could have gotten a warning, we could have gotten a threat from Paul, but he's not threatening us. Instead, he appeals, his appeal is based on what God has done for you through his spirit. Think about how this relates to us. He's saying don't grieve the spirit because you have to stop and you have to stand in awe of the love and grace that has been extended to you to save your soul. Don't grieve him because he loved you with an everlasting love. He saves you by his grace. Don't grieve him. Don't grieve the spirit. He's given you such a great gift by indwelling you. He's made you a temple unto the Lord. Holy temple. Don't grieve him. Because he saved you by divine grace. Don't grieve the spirit who's going to keep you and preserve you and protect you and love you and strengthen you. And mark you all the way up to the last day. He will keep you. And he's going to usher you into the presence of Jesus forever. Why would we want to grieve him? Why would I want to grieve him? We do not want to grieve the spirit of God who has sealed us to the last day. He's going to be your divine guest for the rest of your life. He lives in you. You may grieve him. You may bring about some very unpleasant results in your own life for doing so. But he's not leaving. And he's going to keep you and protect you all the way up to the end and take you safely to heaven. Therefore, don't grieve him. Again, the very spirits in heaven may be happier right now. But they're not any more secure than we are right now in Christ. What an incredible motivation. Let's think about these again. Don't grieve the spirit. He's the one who's going to live with you graciously, put up with you to the very end. Don't grieve the Spirit. He's the one who indwells you, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. Don't grieve the Spirit because He's the one who's sanctifying you and making you more like Jesus every single day. Don't grieve the Spirit because He's put the love of Christ in your soul. Don't grieve the Spirit because He's given you faith. Don't grieve the Spirit. He's granted you repentance. Don't grieve the Spirit because He's written God's law on your heart. Otherwise, you wouldn't know what to do to obey. Don't grieve the Spirit because He's glorified Christ before your very eyes. Don't grieve the Spirit. He's presented Christ as crucified before your very eyes so that you could put your faith and trust in Him. Don't grieve the Spirit. He's going to protect you against the wiles of the devil. And He's going to protect you against the snares of your own flesh. Y'all getting this? Don't grieve the Spirit. He has done, is doing, and will continue to do everything it will take to get you safely to heaven. Therefore, don't grieve Him. Now, why would we grieve Him? See the glory of being sealed and the admonition not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And here's what I want you also to see. See the glory of the cross whereby you are brought near to Christ. Where His blood has been shed for you. And if you're lost this morning, I'm telling you folks... His grace is greater than your failures. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. There's not a person in this room where God's grace cannot overcome your sin. As a matter of fact, He's a much greater Savior than you are a sinner. He can save anybody today. If you bow your heart and knee to Jesus Christ, if you sense that convicting power of the Holy Spirit... If, if the Spirit of God has projected in your mind the glory 
of the crucified Christ and the blood that was shed on Calvary's cross. The Bible says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. You understand what that means? The perfect son of God in all of his obedience. We, we like to talk about the death, but do you understand it was the perfect life that was put to death? And had he not lived the perfect life, you could not be saved. And in the transition, this glorious, magnificent uh, change that has taken place in your heart, it's only possible because Jesus became your obedience for you. You can never obey, but God in turn, when you put your faith in Christ, he gives you his righteousness. And when the Father looks at you, he sees that you have, you have obeyed the law perfectly. Not because you did it, but because Jesus did it. And in turn, you stand in his righteousness. That's an amazing thing. Who would not want that deal? Who wouldn't want it? I mean, come on, folks. You may tell you why? Because he came into his own and his own received him not. Right? But I'm telling you, folks, God has the power to save souls. And if the Lord has opened your heart and mind to the truth concerning Christ, then you can be saved today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to thank you for the word. And, and God, uh, I would never be able to compute on any paper how many times I've grieved your spirit. And I know that's true for all of us. But Lord, let that supreme motivation be that you have sealed us to the very day of redemption. It's not easy believism. It's not uh, a license to sin. When your spirit has shed abroad the love of Christ and written your laws in our hearts, Lord, when those things have taken place, you've given us a desire to obey. We will never use eternal security for a, an excuse to sin. We're going to use it for an encouragement to obey. You've been so good to us. Saved us. Purchased us. Redeemed us. Filled us. And now, Lord, help us to honor the blessed Holy Spirit of God who lives in us. Lord, let our desire be to be a holy man and holy woman, not to gain salvation, but because we're already saved, we have a desire to live righteously. God, help us. And if there's a soul that needs to be saved today, Father, you're in charge of salvation. Lord, the word of God has been preached. Father, there's some things preachers can't do. We can't change a heart. But Jesus can. And Lord God, would you change hearts? In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing Those He Saves are His Delight. Those He Saves are His Delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in His holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. Time out. Time out. That was too good. Hold up. We got to sing that one more time. Is that not the sermon? Really? There it was. Okay. By the way, the other application is if you're saved... And especially if you're a member of this church in regard to the fact that you are saved, you trusted Christ, you're a member of this church, there's a communal aspect about this, right? We don't ever want to treat each other with harsh words without repenting.
without stopping right quick and saying, hey, if I've offended you in any way, maybe you don't even know you did it, but you can tell. The Bible says if your brother has ought against you, you go to them. I love Adrian Rogers one day. He said, the scripture says you leave the offering at the, uh, leave your offering at the altar and go and make it right. He says that's a tainted offering. It taint yours, right? <laughs> but anyway, you understand that we're a community of faith. People get People get in cross, I mean, people get sideways, right? But don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's the lesson, right? Listen to these words. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul his promises shall last, bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Oh, he will hold me fast, he will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so, he will Jim Elliott wrote in his journal just a few weeks before he died, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Folks, this world may take everything away from us, but they can't take away the cornerstone. Can't remove the rock of our salvation. Aren't you thankful for that? Things may look bleak, but I'm telling you, the king is still on his throne and nothing has changed where he sits. That's why the text says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. His will's done in heaven. Let it be done on earth. To God be the glory. Amen. Uh, no church service tonight. It's the last Sunday of the month. You're off. But the next three Sundays, going into April, you're on. Well, no, we're not having Easter Sunday night service, okay? But on the third, we're going to come together to... Uh, on that Sunday night to go over a lot of things that we haven't gone over with finances and things because of COVID and missing services. And we'll also bring a few things to you for your attention uh, that we think you need to hear. So don't forget the third on that Sunday night, okay, to be here for that. All right? God bless you. It's been good to be in the house of the Lord.
you are dismissed. All right, the pastor said you may not be ready to sing There's Joy in the House of the Lord an hour ago, but you are now, amen? <laughs> and there's joy in the house of the Lord. <laughs>